Thank you for listening to Bakersfield Observe, the podcast with Richard Bean. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Centric Healthcare and Premier Lighting. Welcome to Bakersfield Observe with Richard Bean, a podcast for and about Bakersfield and Kern County. Richard's guests are newsmakers, influencers, and personalities who address topics of interest to you and your neighbors and your community. The discussion is fast, informative, and always civil. Now, here's your host, Richard Bean. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to episode 30 of the Bakersfield Observe podcast. We record it right here at the American General Media offices off California Avenue and Highway 99 in Bakersfield. This podcast airs weekly, and it complements the work of the Bakersfield Observe blog. You can access this podcast via Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. You can also access, access it on Kern radio.com today we turn our attention back to the sexual abuse scandal in the catholic church that has embroiled communities across this world including right here in bakersfield where former priest craig harrison faces multiple lawsuits from men who claim harrison molested them when they were younger these lawsuits are pending the church deemed the charges against Harrison credible. In fact, they put him on a list of priests in the Diocese of Fresno who had been credibly accused. And when it looked like the church was considering further disciplinary action, Harrison left the church. While we wait for the civil suits to go to trial, Harrison is trying to rebuild his life as something of a personal counselor of sorts. He produces a daily message on Instagram and does motivational speaking before groups of women. In light of all this, the Diocese of Fresno has now been accused of omitting five more abusive priests from its list of credibly uh, accused priests. Why that happened and what that means is the subject of today's podcast. And today I welcome back to the show Joelle Castix, who returns to this podcast to share her experience. Let me give you a little background on this woman. It's amazing. She was born and raised in Southern California, graduated from US, uh, U, uh, U, <laughs> USC, uh, Santa Barbara, I'm sorry, completed her graduate work at the University of Colorado at Denver. She worked at a, as a journalist, a writer, a PR professional for most of her career, and you can occasionally see her in musical theater productions and classical concerts. Joelle was sexually abused between the ages of 15 and 17 by her high school choir director at Matter Day High School down in Santa Ana. That school is in the news. We'll get to that a little bit later. But after years of advocacy and her civil lawsuit, which was part of the 2005 Orange County Diocese Settlement, Joelle was able to publicly expose her uh, abuser. She now works for a survivor's network that deals with the, the church and abusive priests since 2002, and she has been a spokesperson and leader in events in California and across the country. Joelle, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm great. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you. Let's start by reviewing, if we could, the, for the, this list of what they call credibly abused priests, why that is important and what that means and how that came about. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah. So um, a couple of, gosh, it was pre-COVID, and um, the 
uh, attorney general in Pennsylvania issued a scathing, scathing report into investigating the five dioceses there. And the blowback was so hard that all of the dioceses across the country began releasing lists of credibly accused priests. And they did that because the diocese in Pennsylvania were so embarrassed by, you know, being exposed this way that the other bishops decided to get ahead of it. And so over the course of the the next few years, more and more dioceses release these lists. And Fresno, like the Diocese of Fresno, like all the other dioceses said, we're on it. We're going to release a list. And in fact, we have hired um, Kathleen uh, McChesney to lead up the investigation and do it. And then there's crickets. We heard nothing. Hmm. Every other diocese in California released lists. The California civil window opens, lawsuits start being filed. We have the Craig Harrison brouhaha going on, and we have nothing from Fresno. Mm -hmm. Well, finally, um, late this summer, the diocese decides to put out their list. And it, it was paltry at best. And I have the feeling, based on some correspondence I've seen, that actually Fresno's had this list for a while and just didn't put it out. Um, and then there are these big gaping holes on it. And there are guys that should have been on the list that aren't. And this is like low-hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not like these are sneaky cases that no one knew about. I mean, these are guys who were in the news, credibly accused, causing issues and problems. And then, you know, when Fresno, when, you know, we expose these names, and Fresno says, oh, well, you know, it's because they were a part of the Diocese of Monterey, Fresno. Mm-hmm. So it really doesn't count. Well, I hate to tell you, it counts. Because if you are willing to say, well, that that guy isn't, we're not going to include him because he doesn't meet the stringent qualification that he was only in Fresno when it was Fresno, then who else are they leaving out because it didn't meet some artificial qualification? And so it's it's troubling because this should have been easy. I mean, finding these names is not rocket science. Right. Some of these names had been, had had previously been publicly accused. It wasn't like, as you said, it wasn't like it, it, it was any kind of secret. Uh, but they left them off anyway. T- tell me this as 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 a layman and somebody who's not involved in the church politics and, and its positioning on these things. What, why, why are these dioceses so reluctant to do this when uh, this information is out there anyway? I mean, it, the, the normal person would go, well, you know, uh, if, they're, if, they claim, if, they, if they said they were going to do this, why the reluctance? Well, you know, they have a captive audience in Fresno. I mean, if you look at the, I mean, the, the response that Craig Harrison's getting, his supporters are, they just are steadfast in their support for him. Mm-hmm. And then, so the church, you know, the church leadership knows, number one, that people are still going to go to Mass. Then they also hope that people forget. And let's, let's be brutally honest. Unless, they wouldn't have done anything unless we had been hammering them to do it. They would have just let right. it slide. Right. And now that we have the California civil window in place, the last thing that they want to do is 
put up a flag to survivors who may be wondering, gee, am I the only one? And put these names out there that it's like, oh, yeah, I wasn't the only one they knew. And they've covered it up all this time. I'm going to come forward and file a civil lawsuit. So they, they have a lot of reasons to not do it. None of them are the right reasons. None of them are good reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it behooves them to protect the institution and keep these names under wraps. Because the last thing they want is someone like me finding a name and connecting it to a survivor and getting the survivor help. Right, right. When, can we talk a little bit about this list? Uh, when, you, when they say list of credibly accused, once again, what... How should people look on uh, a list like this? I mean, sh- should they say, is, is the church basically saying that that we believe these accusations are true or we believe that they're credible enough to cast doubt on their on the, uh, say, Craig Harrison's claims of innocence? How should we view it? Well, that's, that's a big problem because we don't know what credibly accused really means. I mean, we don't. You know, I, 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 you know, you look at the Jehovah's Witnesses and to, to come forward and say that you have a credible accusation of abuse, you have to have two witnesses. I mean, we, we have no idea what the Catholic Church's criteria is for this. But we do know that the guys who they do name are already, like, in the public. It's very seldom that they will release a new name unless, A, the priest is dead, mm-hmm. or B... The priest is a problem. So there's a guy. Um, oh gosh, oh, his name will come to me. But he's a he calls himself the itinerant papist preacher, and he hmm. he gives uh, a uh, retreats all over California. Uh, John Patrick Foley, hmm. and so he had been accused, sort of like under the radar. But he started causing a lot of problems because he had been banned from Orange County and no one would say why. Well, San Diego put, finally put him on a list. And it's because he was causing problems and someone had to get ahead of it. But other than that, I mean, they are not – I mean, basically, we're going to say that, you know, when we look at these files, which, of course, they haven't released. Mm-hmm. We, we look at these files and we see someone who's been credibly accused. Usually there's multiple victims. They sent the guy to treatment. The guy admitted it. Um, there's a police report hidden in, in there somewhere. And yeah, so, but we don't, we don't know what their minimum threshold is. I mean, we don't, yeah. we have no idea. So unfortunately we have to take them at their word. Right. Now in, in, in Harrison's case, before he was suspended in April of, I'm losing my, my years here, but a couple of years ago, um, there were there were no indications, at least to the parishioners of St. Francis or, or the public in Bakersfield, that there had been anything amiss. Did that come? I mean, is it common for these the, these things to come out of the blue? Yeah, it's totally common. Um, we've seen numerous cases, um, even now, where a priest suddenly disappears or suddenly reappears. Uh, there was a priest in San Diego, and as I keep talking, I'll remember his name, too. (laughs) And he uh, was arrested and pled no contest to raping a 19-year-old girl. Suddenly he disappears, shows up in Oklahoma. Mm. And so Alex, I'll I'll think of his name. But so you'll see these guys plucked out of a parish or instantly put back. And that's how the church has done this for years, because they don't want parishioners to 
to quote unquote gossip. And there will be, we've had numerous occasions where a priest has gone up and said, gossip's a sin, and if you talk about this, you're sinning against God, when actually what you're doing is you're talking about child sexual abuse and giving survivors support. So, you know, the Church doesn't want to draw attention to this, especially now that there's an active statute that allows survivors to come forward and gain access to these secret files and point the finger at abusers and people who cover it up. Right. You know, when you describe these things, you do some research. It just sounds to me, and pardon the way I'm going to phrase this, that the church is dirty, that the church has been engaged in these some level of cover-up, removing people, moving them to another uh, parish, uh, sending them off to, the, to, to treatment when, there, when there's accusations against them. Is that, is that unfair to look at this? I mean, if I were looking at this, at, if I were looking at the Diocese of Fresno as a corporation, you know, and uh, how, they're, how they handle complaints of, of this nature, I would say, we got something wrong. This sounds like Harvey Weinstein's uh, operation here. What ha- has, is, is this... Is this a problem at the Diocese of Fresno, or is it going on virtually every diocese? Oh, it's, it's every diocese, and it's, it's gone on for— and I have a, a really good friend who's a—I I tease him, I call him the president of the Dusty Book Club, but he, you know, goes through these—he's a former priest and an advocate for victims, um, and he does all this research. I mean, they've been covering up child sexual abuse since the Council of Trent in 312. <laughs> so— it's 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 an issue, and you know any institution will rally around itself before it will help those who are in need. Because when you look at, um, you know, a, a kid is a short term problem. You can you can boot the kid. So, say that again. What 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 do you what do you mean by that? Okay, so if you have a kid come forward and say, "Father X sexually abused me." Mm-hmm. That kid and his family are a short-term problem. It's very easy for a church to ostracize them, not believe them, um, tell them they're the only ones, use uh, church doctrine to shame them, and all that stuff, because the priest who did the abusing is a long-term problem that they have to take care of for a long time. Mm. They've educated this guy, they've fed him, they've taken care of him, they've housed him, they've given him a car, they've put him in charge of money and everything else. So it's much easier for them to punt a kid to the sidelines and say, we don't have to worry about that one kid, but it's far more important for us to protect our investment in Father X. And Mm. it sounds terrible, but that's kind of how institutions work. So... Wow. You know, when somebody ends up on this list, like Craig Harrison, generally, in now, ending up on this list, as you say, we don't really know how the church defines credibly accused, but ending up on this list c- cannot be a, a good thing, certainly. I'm just curious, in, in this case, and, and certainly let's make clear that ending up on this list is not any type of legal conviction. Uh, it doesn't, it, 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 it is, it is just what it is. But is it common for people to react like, or, or embattled priests to react like Harrison and to say, you know, uh, I didn't do it, and I'm going to go on with my life, and I'm going to leave the church, and I'm going to stay in the community, and I'm going to be active, and I'm going to rebuild my life. That's, that's what's happening here. Is that normal? 
No. Oh, Alexis Davila. That's the guy in San Diego. Okay. Great story and a perfect thing of the cover-up. I want to make sure I got that name. But back to Harrison. <laughs> I'm getting old. These names pop into my head at weird <laughs> times. Um, Harrison is entirely unique. Uh, I know that cases like this have existed before, but not to the amplification that Harrison is. Um, we've seen these guys like uh, John Patrick Foley continue to do retreats and stuff like that, but not staying in the area where the alleged abuse took place. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, uh, there was a case in Orange County, Monsignor Michael Harris, he stuck around, but that was, you know, oh, 25 years ago. And so uh, it was before the internet, it was before um you know, the the large, larger survivor movement had, has moved forward. The Harrison case is is very unique because he, it's almost a case of hubris. I mean, I, I haven't seen that kind of hubris before when someone's been um, credibly accused by the diocese and sued. Yeah. When, when, it, when this thing came out, and I, you probably remember this, but one of Harrison's attorneys, Kyle Humphrey, likened the uh, the accusers to pigs at a trough, that, implying that they were just there to, to shake the church down for money. And in fact, that has been echoed among his defenders saying, this is nothing more than a shakedown. We've got this civil window that's open, that's allowing people to come forward. This is just a grab for money. Is that a common response to this too? And what do you make of that? Yeah, I hate that response. I totally hate it because nobody, nobody, wants to come forward and say, I was sexually abused as a child by this priest. And so, you know, the survivors already had to jump through a million hurdles to get to a place to heal enough to come forward and do something. And then, especially in the case of someone like Harrison, it's not, none of those survivors want money. They want Harrison away from kids. They want Harrison's file made public. They want to make sure that what happened to them doesn't happen to anybody else. And I mean, I'll tell you, it's 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 so unfortunately in our civil justice system, money is the only way that they can quantify damages. Mm. But we have done so many of these other cases hurt the church far more with exposing documents, with depositions, with um, making all this stuff public. And that's what the civil justice system allows us to do. And so, you know, it's it's so easy and it's such a low blow to say survivors just want the money. But really, when you do that, it, it shows you're running scared because they're so, I mean, it's that's not even at the beginning of why survivors come forward. Yeah. Not even in the beginning. I want to get, I want to get to the access to these files. Cause that to me seems pivotal as you just, as you just said, but can, can we go back to the California law that has reopened this period for, uh, victims to come forward and when that expires and why that's important? Yeah. So this is, uh, California's AB 218 and, um, it passed in 20, it was, the first year it was open, I guess would be 2020. So we passed it in 2019. And it was, it's a three year window. It extends, first what it does is it extends the age that survivors can come forward and use the civil justice system to age 40. And that's important because we know it takes survivors decades to, to come forward um, and to heal enough. And 40 is not long enough, but it's a good start. Mm-hmm. And then we have the three year window and the three year window um, expires 
on December 31st of 2022. So we have a year and a couple weeks left. And there hasn't been a lot of publicity for the window as much as I would like because we had a pandemic, which got in the way of a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And New York and New Jersey also had civil windows. And so since theirs expired first, there was the big push there to get people to come forward. And so um, that's where our focus was. But now that those have closed, we're looking at California. And what this window does is it allows people who were sexually abused as children in the state of California, no matter when the abuse happened, no matter who the abuser was, to come forward and use the civil justice system. So if you were abused in a Catholic church, a public school, a camp, um, there are issues with the Boy Scouts. You still need to come forward, but with the Boy Scout bankruptcy, there's a whole other thing going on there. If you were abused in sports, if you were, you know, anything, abused by a neighbor, you can come forward and out them in the civil justice system. And that's important because it's the number one way that we have been able to alert the public of dangers that exist right now. And, you know, 99% of these these guys, and unfortunately most of them are men, are, are never exposed and never caught because the statute's limitations are so short. Mm-hmm. So this law really, it, it fixes the imbalance of power and allows survivors to meet the burden of proof, which all these survivors have to. So you can't just stand up and say, I was sexually abused. They, there's a burden of proof they have to meet and say, hey, you know, I, I want to expose this person. I want to expose the institution that enabled this person employed this person, covered up for this person, transferred this person, put him in my, you know, put me in his way. And I want to make sure that this doesn't happen to anybody else. When it, Joel, when you talk about there's there's a certain level of burden of proof on on the accuser, you just can't come forward and say, you know, 35 years ago this happened to me. What kind of proof w- would you need evidence that somebody alerted authorities when this happened or something was said or a complaint was filed with the diocese? What what kind of things are we looking for? Sometimes that's it. Um, a lot of times it's verifying that the kid was a parishioner at a particular church at that time or attended the school at that time or, you know, just, you know, making sure that, that those things connect. Um, many times, uh, a lot of times the survivors never told anyone and the first person they tell is an attorney but because a lot of these guys have been exposed before it's it's easy to know the pattern mm. and so um, it's it's verifying you know the kid was where he or she was when they said they were and so on and so forth um, and then the beauty of the civil justice system is you get discovery <laughs> and all the other pieces fall into place um, like in, for example, in my case, I walked in there and said, I was sexually abused by my high school teacher. And all I had that, to show was, hey, I attended modern day during this time. And if you ask any of my peers, they all knew about it and blamed me for it. Well, so then the diocese said, oh, we have no proof. And this we this is, you know, it's, you know, balderdash, this didn't happen, so on and so forth. Well, we get discovery, and lo and behold, there's a 200-page file with his signed confession saying that that this guy abused me and other girls. Signed documents from school administrators saying, oh, yeah, you know, we knew, but we just thought we could let him go quietly. And a letter from the principal to the bishop. Mm. So they keep extensive records. 
and it's it's very easy to find. And I, the, you know, when going back to your, you know, or people, you know, pigs at the trough and everyone's jumping on the bandwagon, it, the number of false accusations is negligible, hmm. negligible, because no one, no one wants to be in my position. No can, one wants that. Can we talk about that for a second? Maybe start with your case because the your abuse happened when you were a teenager. How long was it? Bef- how how much? How many years passed before you came forward? Well, I actually came forward at the time. Okay, I went to a school administrator. Who had, because I I'd had a, a rough going in high school and um, I had attempted suicide and ended up at a, a psychiatric facility and stuff. So I went to one of the administrators who had been really helpful and kind to me during that time. And it was, you know, the abuse had started and I was, you know, I was very carefully groomed by him. But I'm like, you know, something's weird. I, I I wasn't liking it. So I went to her and said, something weird is happening between me and Mr. Hodgman. And she looked at me and she said, oh, Joelle, isn't it great to be in love? What? Yeah. And I was just like, what? And and I'll never forget that. And she goes, oh, well, you know, Mr. Hodgman told me everything. So you need to keep this quiet because, you know, you don't want to end up back at the psychiatric hospital. And, oh, my God. And this is love. And, and you're a woman now and blah, 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 blah. I was like 15, 16. And, um, yeah, so that shut me up. Wow. <laughs> and, and I was like, well, okay. Uh, so and when then, did you come forward and, and what triggered it? Um, so again, come forward again. I'm sorry. Yeah. So I was never really quiet about it, but in 2001, there was a big case against Monsignor Michael Harris, who was the principal of my high school. Um, and he's been accused by like 30 kids now. And, um, this one survivor, Ryan D. Maria was sexually abused by, um, Michael Harris. And he and his family said, all we want is, you know, you guys to pay for his counseling. And the Diocese of Orange told him to go pound sand. Mm. And five years later, the case settled for $5.2 million. Mm. And I was pissed. So I'm like, you people are idiots. You know, the diocese, you knew this stuff was going on. Why are you fighting these survivors? And so like every sweet little Catholic, I wrote them a letter and said, I want to be a part of the solution. Uh And um, so they saw me coming a mile away and tried to bring me into the fold. And I served on their lay review board for oh, almost a year. Um, and those were all started in 2002 in response to the Boston crisis. Mm-hmm. And so I was on their lay review board where we were supposed to be reviewing cases of sexual abuse by priests. And um, I stepped down and said this, we were just being used as a, as a cover nothing more than a cover. And then I went like, I called an attorney because I was scared stepping down because I had this proprietary information and stuff. So I was like, well, I want to protect myself. And number two, I knew about other abuse. And so I thought, well, I could help other survivors. And even when I went and talked to that attorney, I really did not think I was a survivor or victim of abuse. I blamed myself because everyone told me it was my fault. Mm. You know, the school told me it was love. The diocese told me they had no proof. I'm like, oh, but I can help other people. And it was the civil attorney who was the first person in my life who told me that what happened to me was wrong, that it was a crime, and that he was sorry, and that I deserve healing and and help. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, 
you you talked about these files. You know that seems to me, uh, it, it, and you just said that the Catholic Church keeps meticulous files, right? Uh, yes. Talk to me about why getting to these files and seeing what's in these files, what's in Craig Harrison's file that you can only get to via civil action, why that is important and what you might find there, what you might see there. Well, the Catholic Church's biggest downfall has been that they, they record everything. And for decades, they used it to, you know, keep a thumb on their priests. And then once the civil litigation came in and people figured out about these files, it became a weapon for survivors to use for vindication and justice. And the files, it's interesting. It's a part of canon law. And of course, because my mind is a sieve, the exact number is escaping me there too. But there is a part of canon law that says the bishop will keep secret files about clergy who engage in X, Y, Z acts and X, Y, and Z, or, you know, sexually abusing kids and stuff like that. And so it's, it's a part of canon law. And they even That's part say, of canon law that says that it's okay for the bishop to keep secret files on suspected yeah. abusers? Yeah, so I'm, I'm bringing it up on my computer. Canon law files. And... Uh, Oh, it'll it'll come to me. Okay, but right. um, it's oh, confidential canonical files. Okay. Yeah, coded. Yeah, uh, it'll. I don't want to waste time on the this uh, looking it up. But um, and it says that it will be kept under lock and key by the bishop, and the bishop is the only one who should have access to it. And so pe- when people and so they they'll call them the canon whatever files. God, I don't know why I can't remember the name. Um, but then other like religious orders call have secret names for them. You know the Z files or mm. the bad boy files mm. and stuff like that. So they keep these because it behooves them to have this you know paper trail to follow X Y Z priest to keep their thumb on him. Well, once survivors found out about it. Um, you know, we've been able to go in there and get them under subpoena. And there have been a couple of, um, you know, no-knock warrant kind of things going on where they've been seized from numerous bishops' office and they, offices. And they, I believe they did that in Pennsylvania and a couple other places. Too. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. And, yeah. and some of the things you, you would find in, the, in these files you had mentioned earlier about some of these priests have that it has been routine or maybe that's my question for you is it routine for the church over the years to send these these uh, wayward priests to kind of re-education camps or 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 counseling camps or places where they can kind of fix them you know and and that might be reflected in the file is that is that right yeah so there are numerous church owned and run treatment facilities uh, the service of the paraclete was actually a religious order dedicated to the treatment of these priests. There's the St. Luke's Institute in Maryland, um, and then they have other locations throughout. And there are other hospitals, and they treat a number of problems, anything from alcoholism to the sexual abuse of children. And so they, it's interesting because they will break HIPAA laws, or they, the priest signs away as HIPAA laws, and those facilities will share the priest's medical records with the bishop. Mm. So like in the case of Michael Harris, he was sent to the St. Luke's Institute. There was a complete rundown of all of his problems and the medical reports and everything else. St. Luke's shares it with the vicar general and the bishop. 
And so now it's no longer proprietary mm-hmm. attorney-client privilege or doctor privilege or HIPAA or any of that stuff because it's already been disclosed to a third party. So that kind of stuff is in there. Letters from parents, letters from survivors, um, scolding letters from the bishop, uh, you know, letters from the the uh, perpetrator. All that kind of stuff is in there. Um, you know, in my own case, it was everything from his insurance records to a signed confession to a letter from the principal of the high school to the bishop saying, well, this was what happened, and there's never been, there's never a dull moment at the corner of Bristol and Edinger. Hmm. So, um, yeah, it, they, they put all that stuff in there, anything that they just wouldn't want in your regular HR file. Tell, tell me in the process of uh, in going back to the local case, the Craig Harrison case, lawsuits have been filed are 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 these secret files uh they uh, is this the the discovery process or at what point in the lawsuit do you get access to these files to see what's in there it really depends so right now in california what's going on is the cases are being coordinated so Fresno got off, Dyson Fresno got off easy in 2003 with the window then. I believe there are only like four cases. So they were not brought into the coordination, and there's a legal term for it, um, but I'm not an attorney. I just play one on TV, so I can't give it to you. <laughs> um, so they, so like all the San Diego's cases are coordinated, all of Orange County and LA's cases are coordinated, and Northern California's coordinated. And they do that because you can't and you don't want one particular case to go to trial if you don't know that someone else might have 15 other cases against this perpetrator. Okay. So you want to be able to coordinate that. And if you take a deposition, let's say, you know, you want to take the, uh, you know, deposition of the Bishop of Orange, there's a lot of people who have a lot of interesting questions to ask. So you want to make sure that that's coordinated. Um, And so it's, uh, so that's, that's how it, that's how it's done. So as far as, the files being, you know, brought forward as part of discovery and stuff like that, that doesn't necessarily mean they're made public. It means the attorneys get access to them. And then usually making those files public is a part of a settlement agreement. Uh, And so that doesn't happen until the very end, which is why, um, you know, a lot of times these cases don't settle as quickly as one would think because it's never about the money. It's about the files. Yeah, it is about the files, isn't it? I mean, yeah. because short of knowing what's in the files, you're left with the case that uh, the situation we have here. It's a he, he said, she said. You know, people go, well, you know, I love Father uh, Father Craig. He, you know, he he was so kind to us during during our time of need of X. I can't believe he'd actually do this. And Father Craig says this is all balderdash and it's just a grab for money. And it's it's basically who do you believe? In, in 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 the absence of some written documentation of of things being as I said documented o- o- over the years so do, do you have cases where are there cases that are settled where the file is never made public yeah there are is, um, it, is that common not as not as common well it, it, unfortunately if and I can use a direct example. So when the Diocese of Orange um, settled cases with 97 survivors in 2005, I was one of them, um, they, for the case of living perpetrators, so the dead have no right to privacy. So if the guy's dead, file comes out. Mm-hmm. 
but for the guys who are alive, they had the right to get a lawyer and sign documentation saying, I refuse to have my file released. Now, many priests do not do that um, because they just, you know, if, if they're, if they've been, you know, uh, defrocked or whatever, they, they don't do anything. But like in the case in Orange, the guy who sexually abused me had a lawyer hired for him by the Diocese of Orange, and he signed the paperwork to keep those files secret. <laughs> so I wasn't supposed to get them. What happened was, was that there was a mix-up the day that all the files were released, and one of the attorneys handed my file over to the Orange County Register. And then when the diocese said, you have to give that back, the register said, no way, no how. <laughs> so that's how that got out. But there are other cases in the Diocese of Orange where living perpetrators signed, you know, something saying, I'm, you know, I'm alive and I want my file to be kept secret. In these files, if you're reading a file uh, and you're reading uh, a, a church file on a priest who's, who left the church or, or whatever, and you find evidence that he was sent to one of these rehab clinics or possibly sent twice i i don't know or went sent to a rehab clinic and left and sent back or whatever what does that indicate to you if when the church gets the point where they're sending these guys and i'm talking about for sexual abuse or at the accusations not alcoholism does it has that reached a level that tells you that the church knows there's something terrible or terribly wrong or could you defend it by saying, well, the church is just doing its best and they didn't know and they, they were trying to sort it out through this rehab clinic? Oh, they know. They totally know because they're not going to send. Well, first of all, the priest is not going to want to go if they you know, are an alcoholic or just a troublemaker. And the church says you need to go to this clinic. And if the guy isn't doing it, if he's not a, a child abuser, he's going to be like, no way I'm not going there. Mm. Um, so if, if they send the guy, it's because they know that the guy has some serious problems and is sexually abusing kids. And, um, these guys are sent to numerous treatments. Um, they're sent, and you can see this in their, in their files and in their assignment history, because there'll be these big gaps in their assignment history. Mm. They'll go from parish to parish to parish as opposed to the normal six to 10 year stints that they should do, their stints will only be a year uh, because kids come forward and say, this guy's sexually abusing me. And so they have to get him out of there. Right. Um, and so there are a lot of signs and, and you even in these files and you can see them online. And if you like look up LA clergy files on the internet, a lot of them are posted and there will be letters going all the way back to seminary saying that, you know, uh, applicant X is immature, and they have code words for it. Immature, spends too much time with kids, mm. um, has a tough time making adult relationships, so on and so forth. Interesting. And so it, it, it goes way back. Oh, boy. Yeah, it, it, let me ask you this. Having been through this and now you're involved in the SNAP network and you're doing a lot of work uh, with Jeff Anderson and Associates and other attorneys involved, involved in this has this i'm assuming this this must have tested your faith you are, are you still a practicing catholic no 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 you left the church yeah yeah and i was having problems when i was in high school because i saw the utter hypocrisy of you know and i i didn't have the 
the logical problem solving to say, gosh, my high school principal invites all these boys over to his house, and I know there's booze, and I've heard there's all kinds of problems, yet I'm supposed to respect him as a priest, and I don't understand, and I, I saw, you know, so that really bothered me, as well as the, the open teachings on homosexuality. They op- they openly gave us calling it a sin and aberration, and that really bothered me, too. Mm. And so then as I, you know, grew into adulthood and everything else, and I looked at, you know, the the sex abuse scandal and everything else, I mean, I, I cannot walk into a church and, and, and keep a straight face. It's mm. laughable to me to see the pomp and circumstance that's really just smoke and mirrors for an institution that's covered up sex abuse and other crimes against children and vulnerable people for, you know, generations and generations. Oh, man. And, you know, in, in our case here, we've actually had people leave the church because they support Craig Harrison, not because they blame this on the bishop. And they've left the church for that reason. What would you say to to people who have been abused maybe decades ago, who are sitting on the sidelines going, I've moved on with my life. I think I've dealt with a lot of these issues. Uh, I don't want to, you know, coming forward and, and confronting your past it must be so difficult. What, what would you say to them? Well, the problem with a wound like child sexual abuse is that it will come back to, to bother the vast majority of survivors. And so, you know, I was one of those people, you know, and I, I really didn't even, I didn't even understand that what happened to me was abuse. And that's a big problem too, because these kids are so expertly groomed and oh. tricked into thinking that the abuse is okay. Oh that they don't come forward because they're like, well, you know, I did ask for it. Oh, well, you were nine. Well, you know, I was a mature nine. And so that's, that's a big problem as well. And so, so the, for the survivors who, you know, are 30, 40, 50, or say, oh, you know, I'm okay, what happens is something in your life is going to pick at that wound mm. and it's going to fester. Yeah. And it could be as easy as realizing that the person who sexually abused you went on to abuse other kids or is still alive and still abusing or, or you look at, you look back at your life and you say, gosh, you know, I was really chaotic there for a while and was an addict and screwed up a couple marriages. And hmm, maybe that's because of the sexual abuse. And I was, you know, that was the only way I could cope with it. And so, you know, the, and I tell people, even if, if they say, Oh, well, but I've dealt with it and I've gone to therapy and everything else. And, and, and what I say is this, the number one way that we have to keep kids safer from sexual abuse, the number one way is for survivors to speak up and speak out. And it doesn't mean that you're weak and it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. And it doesn't mean it doesn't, it it doesn't uh, determine your sexual identity. It doesn't do any of that. But what it does do is it opens the conversation in front of a kid who may be sexually be a, a victim of abuse right now and give them the courage to come forward. Perfectly put. Joelle, I don't want to let you go with I have to ask you. I mean, your own abuse happened at the, this high school in Santa Ana down in Orange County, County Matter Day. And most of us know Matter Day from the, the endless stream of, of college-ready uh, players that, that uh, they – uh, that 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 come out of that school. Uh, can you tell us what's going on there now? It's back in the news again, isn't it? Yes. 
so um, I mean, I, I, there's, it's no secret that I have a lot of enmity towards that school, and their football program has been this powerhouse because let's face it, they cheat. They recruit kids in from all over California. Um, they bust them in. They give them free housing. They give them free tuition and all that. So, so they've created this football powerhouse and a, a steady stream of, like you say, it's like almost like a junior college mm-hmm. for these football players before they go off to a, a D1 school. Well, we have known for a long time that there's been a big problem with um, violence in the football program when um, I guess it was the year after I graduated. So this is 1989. The head football coach, Bruce Rawlinson um, attacked a trainer and the trainer that he attacked is a woman named Lynn Ingram. And she it was probably about five feet tall and a hundred pounds dripping wet. And Bruce Rawlinson slammed her up against the lockers and choked her in front of a bunch of players and other teachers and stuff because she kept asking him to keep the locker room locked when it was not being used hmm. because the kids weren't being supervised. Right. And I say that because number one, he got it. He ends up getting away with it. She leaves the school. He gets a hung jury and they keep him on hmm. at modern day. Okay. And the locker locker rooms remain unlocked and unsupervised. So what we have is a horrible case of hazing happened in February um, and there, this kid who was, I mean, he wasn't even, he was like a junior varsity player. He knew that he was, you know, he was a, he ran track. Yeah. And a part of their rite of passage was playing bodies. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not a dude and I don't hang out in locker rooms, but I guess they just punch each other in their body to see who gives in first. Mm. Well, this kid, I believe he goes by player one. Um, is matched up with a kid who is on varsity, who outweighs him by 50 pounds, and is the son of one of the assistant coaches. Oh, boy. And gives him a bunch of head blows, causes a traumatic brain injury, and and so the parents, and then the parents are not called for, like, almost an hour after this occurs. So the kid is sitting outside the locker room bleeding, and nobody calls his parents. And again, the parents were rightfully upset, and so they decide that for their kid's safety, they're going to pull him out of modern day. And modern day messes with his CIS qualification. They put a disciplinary tag on it so that he can't play sports at the new school. And the principal told the dad, and this is in the L.A. Times, and I've actually met this family. They're a wonderful family. Tells the dad, well, if he stays at modern day, no, he wouldn't have had that tag on his record. Oh. <laughs> and it's like the petty retribution and the fact that, you know, Rawlinson admitted that these kids do it all the time. The locker room was unsupervised. The kid, Rawlinson said he was in a tight place because the other kid involved was the son of an assistant coach. And then all of a sudden, so this happened. Then we find out there was another violent attack on a basketball player by a couple other football players. So, um, you know, those cases are, are moving forward. They're separate. Um, and I don't know if the the one where the basketball player was attacked names the school because it didn't happen on school property. But um, I will tell you, I have met with some local lawmakers about changing the laws around hazing because as it works now, first of all, CIF has no regulations whatsoever to 
to get to investigate and um, punish hazing, mm. which is stupid. I mean, they're under the State Department of Education, so like, so I, you know, the the legislature needs to get behind that and get CIS in line, and then also the current hazing criminal law has no um, re- criminal repercussions for schools and agents and administrators and stuff who know about the hazing and facilitate it or turn a blind eye to it. And that does exist on the civil side, but not on the criminal side. And all it takes is just like two or three words added to the criminal law. To, because it's like, unless you hold someone like Bruce Rawlinson criminally accountable for the fact that he knew those guys were playing bodies. Mm-hmm. He knew they were beating the crap out of each other. And he continually left that locker room unsupervised. If he knew he could be criminally accountable, gee, let's see how quickly he'll fall in line and make sure that that stuff is shut down. Uh, is, is, is protecting this this storied football program at the base of this that you know it's, uh, we don't care what happens to these kids, be it, but we've got we've got a brand we we don't we don't want to be tarnished. Exactly, it's just yeah. like what I was telling you before. The kid is a short term problem. Mm-hmm. So they thought the school thought that they could shut up player one's family by either dinging his CIF qualifications to keep him at the school. Um, or just, you know, alienating him. But they, they got rid of him. They thought, okay, all is good, all is fine, and we can keep the program going. And so they thought that by getting rid of that one bad apple, and the bad apple being the victim of hazing, that the brand remains good and strong. And something that I have really been heartened by is that, you know, so I still live in Orange County. And modern day stickers are everywhere and everyone's rah, rah, modern day. And they sell out their football games with like 15,000 people for a high school football game. (laughs) But the absolute disgust and outrage by the public at this hazing has really, really enheartened me. Good. Because, you know, for a long time I've been sitting there. It's like, am I the only one who sees this? Am I the only one who's angry? Well, fortunately, there's now a groundswell of very angry people. So, the, you know, the school is under the the microscope of a, a couple civil lawsuits. Plus, I'm going to get the legislature involved. Plus, you know, they're doing an independent review. And, and hopefully, you know, heads are going to roll. And it's not going to be victims' heads. It's going to be bad people. <laughs> the bad people are going to be punished for this. All right. Well, we're going to keep our, our eye on that one. Joelle Castix has been our our guest. She has devoted her life to to programs to protect our children and no no, no matter what settings that uh, they're in, specifically with the Roman Catholic Church. We've been talking about the, the Diocese of Fresno. Joelle has been our guest today. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Bakersfield Observe, the podcast with Richard Bean. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Centric Healthcare and Premier Lighting.